The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov career USBP. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber, straight back from Lords. Uh, so it is very late. Thank you to Hamza for saying I'm not going to get much of a live audience if you said it at this time. I'm aware, Hamza. But as also there's test matches and other work to be done. We do the lives when we do them. So if you do want to follow on Jared Kimber podcast, our new channel on YouTube, go ahead. Uh, we make no promises that they'll be in your time zone because cricket is a 24-hour time zone. So chances are I'll be fitting it in wherever I can. Uh, big thanks to Oren and Embers, who are also in the chat as well. If you're desperate to ask a question here, the best way to do that is via a Super Chat. But, of course, many people before Super Chats have already got involved with Patreon. And if I'm not mistaken, I think there's a few questions today. So let us get into the main part of the show. Jake says, if Ben Stokes only bowl a handful of overs and barely hit 80 miles an hour, is he in England's best 11? Are they better with Sam Curran, Chris Wokes as a bowling all-rounder or Ben Folks keeping with Besto as a specialist batter? I think Ben Stokes' batting is still good enough for them to go with him. Also, everything he's done for them as a captain over the last little while. I don't think they're about to drop him anyway. I, I don't mind him as an 80 mile an hour. I think it's a frustrating thing to watch him bowl at 80 miles an hour only because we know he can bowl a lot quicker than that. But he gets the ball to move around. He probably, outside of Anderson, has the most conventional swing of any of the England bowlers. Uh, and, you know, he's still a very clever bowler. We saw him take, I want to say, a wicket in each innings in the last match. Uh, th- today, he, he looked a little bit more stiff today at times. Um, speed still seems between 78 and 81, 82, so roughly the same as we saw in the last one. But he did look a little bit stiffer there. I mean, they're not going to drop him, Jake. I mean, I think that's the best one. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Sam Curran as a number seven. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, or Chris Wokes as a number seven, being a better player than Ben Stokes as a number five. Uh, and the Ben Folks thing, I think you can go either way with that. But it's Ben Stokes. They're going to milk as many of those last 80-mile-an-hour balls out of him as possible. Sandip says, do you think basketball will make it harder or easier for any New England players to make it into the team in future? They might have been playing old-fashioned cricket for years. Wouldn't that be harsh on them? Yeah, I think that's the problem with coming in with a very, very strict plan. I don't think that's necessarily 
means that it won't work because England have so many limited overs specialists that perhaps they can do it for a very long time. But yeah, I think the problem with having such a strict plan is, I think we might have talked about this on a recent podcast, is they've got two openers, neither of which look like making consistent runs in test cricket as it currently stands. So let's say they both fail. The best opener outside the side, I haven't looked for a while. Let's say it's Ben Compton. Do they not pick Ben Compton? Do they go with, I don't know, James Vince or what's more rogue, Ben Stokes opening or whatever that may be over just picking their best opener? At that stage, are you really picking your best team anymore or are you just slaves to your own algorithm and philosophy? So I, I, think, that, I think that's a fair question, Sandip. Uh, Aditya says, if you had to pick a batter and bowler from two different eras who never faced each other in a test, which contest do you think would be the most interesting to watch? Peak Ashwin versus Peak Lara would have been a great contest. That's a really, really good one. I hadn't, um, uh, I, I think I might have saw, seen this question the other day. I, that is probably one of the best ones you will see. Uh, I'd love to see Tendulkar versus Bill O'Reilly. I think that would be a fantastic one as well. Um, I had another really good one. So, oh, um, Ricky Ponting versus Jeff Thompson, which I don't know if that breaks the rule because, you know, maybe that would have to be in a Shield game. I'm trying to think if there was any others. Uh, I thought Richard Hadley and Raul Dravid would be a really, really interesting one as well. I think those are the ones that automatically come to my head. And if you're going, you know, ye olden days, I would love to have seen how, you know, peak Sid Barnes would have bowled to Don Bradman. I'm not saying he would have had any more success in, than anyone else does, uh, but you know, you read the stories about Sid Barnes and as good as a bowler as he was, or great as a bowler as he was, I always thought that the best things about him was the way he worked over individual players uh, who were incredible themselves. So, you know, there's the story about how he gets Aubrey Faulkner out and all this sort of stuff. I would love to have seen how that would have worked with Bradman. I mean, Bradman's probably one step ahead of that, but those are the ones off the top of my head. Um, and just, I, I would assume your question, you have said test cricket. I'd love to see, I'm trying to think who the best hitter of left arm pace bowling was. I think it might've been Chris Lynn. I would love to see Chris Lynn up against Wazim Akram uh, or, or Andre Russell up against Wazim Akram in a T20 game. Philip says, Demi report, uh, the ISEC, ICEC, ICEC, I think we're saying ICEC, uh, on the discrimination and qualities in the ECB has come out. The report mentioned getting rid of Eaton versus Harrow match and match fees to be equal for men and women. What are your thoughts on these and what more could be done to radically improve the situation? Do you think other cricket boards or even the ICC will be sprung into action by this? The ICC will do everything they can not to be sprung into action by this, so I don't expect them to do anything. Um, I, I haven't read the full report, uh, Philip, just because I had a wedding yesterday and had the test match today, but, you know, I, I get the gist. And there's nothing nothing that I've seen so far that is in any way surprising. It's the sort of stuff I've been talking about on this podcast for a very long time. Uh, the Eaton versus Harrow match, I, I don't know if the ECB can get rid of it. I don't know what the full uh, plan, you know, how that works. Obviously, Eaton versus Harrow shouldn't be played at Lords anymore. You, I would argue it probably never should have been played there, but certainly not in this day and age. Uh, I understand what the members want and why they might want it, but Let's be serious here for a minute. It's a ridiculous thing that it, there's going on from that perspective. Uh, match fees from uh, equal for men and women. I got some '90s dinosaur coming at me with uh, you know women's cricket is the the, the quality of schoolboy cricket. It's just it, that hasn't been the case in a decade. It certainly isn't the case now. No, there ain't no schoolboys who are getting Elise Perry out unless they're like international under uh, under 19 quality there's no it's just nonsense when people say that and then and then they will say things that men uh, the men's team earns more than the women's team well at the moment you know when you look at the wages of county players who no one's going to watch 
they are still getting paid a very, very good salary. Um, and I'm talking about first-class county players where that's the main part of their contract uh, compared to, you know, quite a few of the women's players who are playing in, t- in front of far bigger crowds. It doesn't, the match fees is the easiest thing to make a, a balance. The overall contract is going to take a lot longer than everything else. And women's cricket not only needs to make more money, it is making more money. Not only that, it's the faster growing thing. Uh, uh, look, I think, I think the way that English cricket has always been run, certainly while I've been around, but if you go through the history books as well, is it has been run by people quite often from elite backgrounds who run the sport for people of elite backgrounds. If the kick, it doesn't matter what the ethnicity is, the class, the race, the sexuality, uh, the gender, all of these different things. When it comes down to it, if you keep running the sport for the people by the same people, you're going to get the same results. They need to look at from ground up who they're hiring, why they're hiring them, what their skills are and everything else. It's the only way. You know, the 100 exists. The ICAC report obviously had to happen, but the ICAC report... We already had it with 100. We knew the ACB wouldn't have made the 100 if cricket was going in the right direction in this in this country. Uh, ben says, uh, DRS, my understanding is that umpire's calls to allow for potential errors in the predictive element. Why does umpire call ap- uh, apply to the impact oh, uh, in line with the off stump? There is no predictive element there. Well, there isn't a predictive element there, Ben. But if you go back, me and Katake did a podcast, well, maybe a year and a half, two years ago now, about why this is the case. And there was a very good example of that from the Short Broad LBW on the first day at Lords. So if you, a couple of hours ago, if you're listening on the YouTube, but if you're listening on the podcast yeah, a little while ago, if you have a look at, it's very hard to make because of the way the frames work, the exact impact is very rarely right. And so what me and Kartikeya were, were trying to say is that I don't have a pad in this, in, in, in this room, but a pad is not a solid object. And so a pad moves. And if you think of all the missing frames that we have, quite often a lot of the mistakes that are made by Hawkeye and DRS is not, not the fault of Hawkeye or DRS. It's actually where the person on the TV, uh, well, on the on the broadcast, is saying that the first impact is. And that's because the pad moves and it shuffles and, and all these sorts of little things. So we do know that there are errors from that, that perspective. And that is why we have those um, there uh, to protect it. That, that's why... When people want to get rid of umpire's call, there's a reason why we have umpire's call. And it's because we know at the moment there are errors within the system. It's really funny that a similar sort of group who didn't want DRS at all, now want only DRS. Well, the people who've designed DRS know that it has flaws in it. That's why umpire's call exists. And that, that's what we're talking about with these sorts of things. Oh, wrong person. Oh, where are we? Ben again, expanding my question, why does pitching outside leg need 51% of the ball to be inside leg stump, but impact only needs to be as low as 1%? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think the ball, they, what they're saying is that the ball needs to pitch in line. So these are, these are very different questions. In one, you are saying, has the ball pitched inside the line of the stump? So that could be off stump or leg stump. I don't think there's any difference in that unless I'm misremembering the laws or the playing conditions, but I don't think so. They're saying it has to be pitched inside the line. The only way for it to pitch inside the line um, is for it to be more than 50% of the ball. So if it's 49% of the ball inside, that would say that the majority of the ball is outside. And that's what they're doing. The ball is not a flat... um, a speed, you know, it doesn't flatten completely when it when it lands on the pitch. So they're saying it has to be more than fifty percent. The impact is a slightly different thing. 
right? And and in that particular case, it's it, it, what you're talking about are, are two slightly different things from that perspective, and that's why they are both judged uh, a little bit differently uh, from that perspective. So, uh, we the whole fifty percent of the ball thing is, I think, was originally. I'm going to have to go back and have a look. But there was a 50% of the ball thing and people didn't like it and they wanted to judge it slightly differently. Um, if I remember the original or certainly what the original plan was going to be. Um, and there have been a lot of changes. I, I think it should probably be 50% for both. But it, it is to do with, you know, pitching in line is different than impact is the way that they look at it. But it's all fair questions. Uh, if, if you're saying, if we explain these rules to a non-cricket fan, I couldn't explain the difference between impact and pitching. But most laws, if you explain them to a non-cricket fan, don't really make any sense. Most To a cricket fan, most laws don't make sense. To cricketers, um, they don't make sense. James says, Damien Fleming never got to bowl in a test in England. As as a skilled swing and seam merchant, how do you think he would have fared had he played his home test in England? Jeez, if he played consistently. Um, I don't think people understand how good Damien Fleming was. Uh, I don't even think we ever got to see him at full um, fitness, he was so rarely uh, fit. So let's have a look at Flem. He played 20 tests with a bowling average 25.89. And if I'm not mistaken, and I'm going to check it right now because I'm bloody interested in this now. Um, if I'm not mistaken as well, he played a little bit in, he played, so he played six of those tests in Asia where he averaged 31, 32. So he averaged 24 in uh, Australia. I think that's all in Australia. Uh, and then in Africa, he played the one test in uh, against Zimbabwe. Um, so, yeah, so basically in Australia, he averages 24 with the ball. He's a phenomenal bowler. Not quick, quick, but certainly very fast medium. Uh, incredible ability to swing the ball. Probably uh, in that era would have been nearly unplayable had he played consistently. Surprising bounces. Short, so he skidded the ball a little bit at times as well. He had a lot of energy on the ball. Um, which I always thought, you know, was was quite an interesting thing for him. He, you know, I don't know if he ever played first class cricket in England. I can't remember him doing it. I'm actually commentating with him at SEN. I should ask if he played club cricket. But my my guess would have been that no one would have ever been able to hit him. It, you know, his ability, he would have been a little bit like Ben Hilfenhaus 15 years before his time. But when Bill Ben Hilfenhaus still had a little bit of nip about his bowling as well, and I think he swung the ball further and later than Ben Hilfenhaus did. Um, he certainly had the ability to bowl more of those sort of magic balls that sort of look like they're going to slip down leg side and take the top of off stump. You know, just a genuinely incredible swing bowler. And yeah, had he played in England, even first-class cricket, I think he would have been just a next-level player. But he was always injured as well, partly because he's a very small guy. Um, I, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. But he's not a big dude. Vickers, he's not for a fast bowler. I mean, I'm sure he's a normal heighted person. Don't know why suddenly this has come across as uh, phlegm slander. But Vickers says, uh, why do you think uh, Surav Ganguly made Rohit uh, Indian T20 captain after 2021 World Cup failure, especially when he's already failed as an opener in the 2012, 2014, 2016, and 2021 World Cup? Um, and the prob probability of him failing in 2022 was pretty high. Yeah, I, I mean, we know that he was a good solid opener. So, I would never, of a player of his talent, even if he'd failed on all those occasions, I would never even put that into my mind, unless you thought he had some sort of technical fault that only showed in World Cups. Uh, he failed in the 2021 World Cup. They made him captain. I can't understand. Look, they were looking for, they knew that their T20 model was outdated. They went to the person who had the most success in the IPL. 
it's very hard to recreate that. And also playing for India is very different than playing in the IPL. The pressure is far less, obviously, when you're playing for, uh, for an IPL team than when you're playing in the IPL, um, especially in those knockout tournaments. The whole country suddenly watching, you know, not just a section of the country, everything else. They won. They were not getting him as an opener, although, you know, quite clearly. I mean, me and Ben Jones have talked about this before. He's, you know, a okay opener. No one, none of us would ever say that he's exceptional. He has his issues as a player, but they weren't really hiring him for his opening. Right? They were hiring him as a general player, as a you know, a leadership and the the role that he brought in. He did try and change that team quite a lot if you look at the last World Cup. Um, and so from that perspective, I think they tried. But as I've talked about before, they also went back to their old methods. So having the new captain, you know, didn't necessarily work. I, I don't think Virat was particularly the captain that they needed if they wanted to change their T20 cricket. But Rohit Sharma also didn't probably change it in the way that they would have wanted either. Niran says, has it been easier for batters uh, to debut during the pace playing pandemic for experienced batters? Then for experienced batters to adapt to new conditions, guys like Head and Lubbershane. Uh, no, they certainly, it, I mean, when you say if, if everyone was um, like Head and Lubbershane, then all the older players would have already been replaced. There's actually quite a few new players have come in and struggled as well. I think there are specific players for many different reasons who have either been able to adapt quicker or maybe had something within their batting that allowed them, uh, you know, to handle the, the wobble ball a little bit differently. I would assume. That if you are 29 or 30 and you suddenly had to deal with it in the way that David Warner did, or Virat Kohli might be another good example of this, it would be very, very tough because your method by that stage is absolutely set in stone. Whereas I think for Head, he came in, he certainly got the wobble ball, certainly affected him early on. He went off and worked on it and came back and he could do that because he was dropped. Manus is an interesting one because he seems to have worked it out almost from the first moment he saw it in county cricket. So... He's almost an outlier, but there aren't that many new batters coming in and absolutely dominating the game. And so, no, I don't think that's the case. But I do think with any new method, it's much easier to learn it if you're probably, you know, age 23 to 27 than it is if you're age 28 to 32, just because you have a little bit more of that flexibility at that stage. And, you know, the best players ever are really good at adapting constantly. But Steve Smith might go down as the second best batter of all time in Test cricket. It took him a while to work it out as well. It was a, it's a, new way of batting and watching him you know on day one at lords come down the wicket uh, to seam bowlers shows he's still working out how to deal with it christopher says if there was a draft for associate players by the uh, the rest of the playing nations who'd be the players that get picked up oh um well josh little and rashid khan are not associates anymore so they were the first two that sort of came to mind um that's a really good question. I, I know, I remember talking to the associate players a couple of years ago and everyone sort of assumed that Callum McLeod was the best player, uh, the best batter, but I don't think that's the case anymore. I would have thought that, uh, oh, um, uh, Brandon Glover, Paul Van Meekeren, um, I'm missing one, aren't I? Maybe even Fred Clarsen from Holland would all be interesting players. Uh, obviously, Sandeep Lamachano, notwithstanding his, his recent troubles, would certainly be another one. Um, trying to think if there's any Americans that would, I mean, you know, traditionally, obviously, Ali Khan, but maybe no, less so now. Um, Aaron, I should know his name. I've got his shirt behind me here. Uh, Aaron, whatever, his name is an interesting player, but I can't see him being picked up by anyone, although he'd probably fit into Ireland's uh, batting. Um, Oman and UAE have a couple of players who are interesting, and they might be handy to a team like, Ireland, 
Um, Scotland have a bunch of seamers of which I'm sure, you know, Afghanistan would be interested in. Uh, you know, if you look at, they're not even using their frontline seamers at the moment. Uh, so th- I, think, I think there's a few players out there, Christopher. Um, I need to think more. I feel like I'm missing some really obvious associate players in that as well. But we're moving on. James says, who do you think would be the all-time best bowler in test cricket if they had their choice of available conditions? Uh, so you say conditions in abandoned test matches don't count. So you'd be saying if, like, if you just had one wicket um, to bowl on um, and you had to bowl on that for the rest of your career? Hmm. I mean, if you gave Headley Verity or Bill O'Reilly wet wickets, they were essentially invented maybe laker as well those guys were like invented to be to, to dominate those kinds of wickets Loman on the uncovered wickets but i kind of feel like anyone on those on you know if if there was another really good seam bowler even from 10 or 15 years after him bowled on the same wickets on him would have done pretty similarly this is a really interesting question because the best way i would think about this is you would have i don't know let's say was macron or curtly ambrose or malcolm marshall uh, Wes Hall, these sorts of guys that were very, very good at bowling on flat wickets. You actually, like if you're a really good bowler, you almost want to bowl on a slightly flatter wicket because that's when your true talent um, would shine out above other bowlers. But I do understand your your idea of, uh, you know, having their best conditions. But I suppose you would have to look at, um, and I'm trying to think about the best way of looking at this, <laughs> you're probably looking at the best bowler ever in home conditions, right? Uh, and I would assume that would be Murali, um, or Harath, I suppose, is another really good one there, of of someone who, in their home conditions, is almost unplayable. And I'm going to see if I can bring this up now. So let's say, uh, let's say that you had to have taken 200 wickets at home. Let's make let's make it a lot, shall we? And then and then we look at the best bowlers because I would think this is what would. A- answer that question so merely averaged 19 in sri lanka truman averaged 20 ashwin averaged 21 sean pollock averaged 21 ambrose averaged 21 so i think those those are the ones that kind of make the most sense harath was actually a little bit higher he's up to 23 24 uh, but maybe at individual grounds harath might be uh, one of the highest there um because i would have thought trying to don't even know if i can do it by grounds uh, I can do it with my grounds if I take that away. Yeah, if you look at in because that's what you're really talking about here, James, aren't you? How how specific you can get. So if I get the most wickets ever on a ground, uh, so Murali took 166 wickets at the SSC at 20. But he, oh wait, wait, he also took 117 wickets at in Candy uh, at 16. Yeah, it's Murali. It's Murali Ambrose at. Queen's Park Oval, 66 overs at 13. So I think that's what the best way of answering your question uh, is which bowl. Because, I mean, otherwise you're just guessing, aren't you, at a certain point. But, yeah, I said Ambrose and Murley, I suppose, along along the journey there, along the line. But that makes sense. Harath is – I thought Harath had taken more at goal. Ah, oh, his average is 25 at goal, but he took 100 wickets there. Not bad for a bloke started most of his career in his 30s. Nadika says, why don't we have a scorecard for what happens in a super over? If cricket scorecards tell the story of a match, why, at least on Crick Info, can I only find the story of a super over? I think a lot of it had to do with algorithms and how the scorecards are all put together. Uh, I do know, 
I think this is from Atomic Creek Info, but it might have happened on another website as well, where places have had a lot of problems with the Super Rover and how they fit in because it's not how the school scoreboards are uh, traditionally held. I think you can find them if you know what games have had Super Rovers. You can find them usually in the commentary on Creek Info, and I'm assuming same with Creek Buzz. Uh, but yeah, we don't really keep stats with them. But it's the question that you're asking the digger is, was Logan Van Beek's the best Super Rover ever? I'm just going to say yes, just based on the fact that I, you know, I can't think of anything that, that could have been better. Anyway, I'm going to take a short break here. And when we come back, we'll have got some more questions from Patreon, and then we'll take a look at the room as well. You're listening to Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimber. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team, even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. All right. Thank you, everyone. Uh, great. Lots of good comments here from Dex and Kyle and Aman and... Romcom, uh, uh, so thank you uh, to everyone there, and there's a couple that I might get to later as well. Uh, but let us get back to the Patreon. And Niron says, "What do you think of Bangladesh's chances in the upcoming Asia Cup and World Cup?" Look, if we're being honest, I haven't looked that far ahead. <laughs> it's it's a way off. I've started watching a lot more One Day Cricket of recent times, and I will continue to watch a lot more. But I am a way off from this question. What I would say is, I have no interest in the Asia Cup. It's just not something I follow. Um, one tournament too far. I might watch this one, obviously, you know, with the World Cup following. But even then, I, I doubt it. I, I like Bangladesh's team. I've talked about it a lot. How it stacks up in India, I'd need to take a much closer look at. But I think they're a really exciting team. I think they've got batting for the first time ever where I'm like, yeah, this I could see how this would work. Uh, and their bowling is, there's, there's lots of, you've still got Shakib. A couple of other decent options there. And obviously their scene bowling has, has taken a step up of recent time. There's a lot of good cricketers there. I'm not going to say they're going to make the semifinals or the top four. Um, semifinals, that's what I meant. I, I think they're in a position where they should be pushing for it. But I would have to go through every team. But just off the top of my head, based on what I've seen of them, commentated a few of their games, of course, and been following them a little bit more recently, I think they have a chance. Of, of a semifinal. Of a sneaky, of pushing for a semifinal berth is maybe the best way of putting it. Camp says, I was surprised about how much um, of the coverage of Zimbabwe's win over the West Indies at these qualifiers was an upset. Based on form last year, uh, surely it should have been more of an upset for West Indies to beat Zimbabwe, especially in Zimbabwe. Look, I mean, it's just, just narrative catching up, right? Zimbabwe has not been good for a very long time. We know they had the, the world um, T20, but they don't really have any media behind them. Even some of the other associates have more sort of, you know, there's probably more buzz about Ireland doing things than there is about Zimbabwe. So that's why they're still seen in that way. But yeah, I think anyone who's followed them, I mean, I think it's an upset in that, you know, I would have said that it was a 50, you know, 53 to 47 game. I still would have had West Indies with their players as a big chance of winning it. There's a lot of players in that Zimbabwe team. It's a bit like the Ireland team where I'm just like, are they, there's, there's a few players that are, making up numbers but the players who are exceptional are so good that they're overcoming that i don't think there's anyone in the west indies team specifically i would look at and go you know they're making up the numbers but their overall talent might be stronger but their individual talent um and you know match winning talent maybe is not on the same level as zimbabwe 
Aditya says, would it be fair to say that English cricket media is more likely than other cricket nations to get carried away with their teams going well? No, this is every cricket nation I've ever come across. I would actually say in some ways that, and I wrote about this the other day, Aditya, that in some ways the England, not just media, but fan base is waiting for disaster at all times <laughs> in a way that kind of not the case with, with well, certainly with the big three nations. Um, so I think that's a little bit different. I feel like no matter how well the Australian men's team is doing, Australian cricket media will always find some disingenuous criticism of them, similar to India and Pakistan media. I, I mean, yes, but I think you'll find that with England as well. I don't think that's, uh, again, I think that that happens as well. During that sort of 10, 11 to 13 period where they were the best team in the world, listen to the way the England media um, were, were not talking about that as the best team in the world, despite the fact that it was quite clearly the best team in the world there for a little while. Um, so, no, I think that that's just, that's, but also, I think sometimes people misunderstand what the cricket media is supposed to be doing, right? Like you are, you are not cheerleaders. Your job is not to um, do that sort of stuff. Your job is to go, you know, even when you're covering, you know, brilliant Australian runs, you're still saying, or, or South African runs, you're still saying to yourself, could they get better? Could they develop better for the future? And no team doesn't make a mistake from that point of view. Um, uh, was the Australian cricket media this critical of the golden generation when they were winning everything? There was plenty of dissenting voices. I mean, I think Channel 9 was well over the top. I think ABC probably covered them quite well. And there were newspaper writers. It, I, I think the Australian media, from my perspective, has been as cheerleady as any media. Um, but they then suddenly go in on people. So Ricky Ponting's captaincy and Michael Clark's existence and Davey Warner, then Davey Warner's a hero again. Um, they do sort of rebound around these guys a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's, this is, it's all fairly normal. I would say that the one thing that's different about the English media to most of these other ones that you've mentioned is the scale of the English media. And there aren't many, there, there are so many big newspapers. There's obviously, you know, BBC and TalkSport. Um, there's so much readership, you know, in one language of one team uh, that is all national. So I think there is different things that you get in India, Pakistan, and Australia, which can be a lot more regional. You know, that isn't a North newspaper and a South news newspaper or a North radio station and a South radio station in England, right? And so everything is national. So it's a little bit different from that perspective, whereas, you know, even in the glory days of uh, Australian cricket, Victoria was still running news articles about how Dean Jones should play, right? So Ian says, uh, the women's multi-day cricket debate, the Ashes test was brilliant and Australia just about, uh, just about deserved winners of a great contest. If we're to schedule two tests with two ODIs and two T20 games for future women's series, instead of playing uh, one, three and three, could that help to push England and Australia into playing some red ball cricket at domestic level? I just don't think that's going to happen, Ian. I, I, I've got no problem with you suggesting it, but I don't think that is on anyone's agenda at the moment. That the I, I would even think the players they they want to play more tests, but I don't think they would want to play more first class games because I think that would take away from their you know the way that they do it. I mean, they want to play first class games because women don't play first class games because don't know how you can play tests and not play first class games, but that's a conversation for another day. But. Um, <laughs> So I think they want to play more tests, but I, I think if you said to them, would you like to play less internationals? Well, like if you were, I don't know, Kate Cross didn't make the World Cup squad or the team. I can't remember now. 
she gets a chance to play some one days against Australia, take some wickets. She's got a chance of a women's uh, Premier League contract, uh, you know, a women's uh, CPL, women's big bash, all these different leagues out of it. Playing good in the test match is great, and I'm sure they would like to play more of it, but it doesn't build on their careers as much. But I could be wrong, and I'm sure there's many different opinions from different women's players as well. I mean, there are women's players who don't care about test cricket just because it's never been part of women's cricket. Well, not a major part. Bobbio says, is the ODI World Cup format a good one? No. Uh, round robin style sounds nice in theory, but I feel like it would produce a surplus of games with little to no consequence. It's, yeah, I just don't I, I don't. I have no problem with... I have no problem with um, early round robin games, obviously, group games and working out everything. I, I, I don't want it to be, I don't know, the top 32 teams. Does that make sense? 32, 16? Uh, yep. Um, playing and then going down in that way. Like I lo- obviously there should be some round robin games, but I do think that after that round robin, it should be quarterfinal. Well, I would even like the top sixteen teams playing eventually, but obviously we're way away from that. I mean, at this stage, even having sixteen teams, we're away from. But I love it if you know the top sixteen teams, the top eight teams, you know, top four teams, top two teams, etc. Played in that way. I think there should be. You should have to win a bunch of knockout games in a row to win a world tournament. I don't think you should be able to sort of chug your way through to the semifinals, get a pitch that suits you, um, uh, and then have that one great performance from one player and win a World Cup. I think it should be harder than that from a knockout perspective. Then there should be more pressure. Um, but I, yeah, there's, I wouldn't, there's almost nothing about the, the World Cup sk- schedule that I enjoy. Uh, Nanika says, do we keep stats on Super Ops? I'll just go back to your thing before. I'm sure someone does. They're not in my records, but someone like Andrew Sampson might have them. Uh, you might be able to find them on Crick Sheets if you know how to code. Um, I don't know if any of the websites have them. I'm trying to think of some of the more analytics-driven websites. I've never seen them, but to be honest, Nadeek, I, I don't look them up. I, I wouldn't think there would be many. There's been some great ones. I've got a feeling that the Dutch might have been in two of the greatest ones ever. And I can't remember who the other game was, the Dutch, but I think Dirk Nanis bowled someone out first ball. Maybe there was a leg by second ball and bowled someone out third ball in, in a super over as well. And maybe they won with a leg by. I can't remember. But for whatever, I've got a vague memory. Maybe Bertus De Jong will remember if, he, if he's out there watching this one. But I've got a vague memory of, of the Netherlands having just an absolute, another ripper game um, along their time as well. But yeah, uh, there must be players who never get involved in super overs in long periods of time. So, you know, keeping the stats doesn't really make sense, but we should be keeping a record. I think that probably makes more more sense. Emran says, do you think the Big Bash and Super Smash could attract more funding and attract better players if they merge leagues, potentially adding a team in P&G or Canberra down the line? Look, I, I, I've always thought that New Zealand sport would be in a much better situation if they, you know, paired up with Australia. And so if you had the Big Bash and you had, what, three teams in New Zealand and, you know, seven teams in Australia, that doesn't work, does it? It would have to be eight teams and three, maybe eight teams in Australia. Um, three teams in New Zealand have 11 teams. I'm not sure how the mass works and all that, but uh, I think it's better for them. They still have their own domestic competition running behind that, but it's more done, you know, to work out who the next uh, players are. But it would make a lot more sense, you know. So uh, New Zealand have teams in the Rugby Union League, which is not just Australia. I think South Africa is involved in that as well. They have... Um, a teams in the soccer 
rugby league and the basketball competition. I, I've always thought it, it makes sense as long as they still have a thriving competition behind that, because that is important. You don't, you know, you do need that second um, thing, but you can do that much more on the cheap then um, and do it for, as a regional um, tournament. I've, I've always thought, but, but I, I think that right across the board, it would be better for Australia as well. I think, the same with Zimbabwe, the same with Namibia, and you know, lots of different places. You can make people make the argument about Ireland, Netherlands, and Scotland. Again, there are many different reasons why I think that's a very good system. Uh, Papua New Guinea, I don't think they'd add a team in Papua New Guinea. Um, but I get your point. Canberra, the only thing I would say about Canberra is, and I'm not an expert in Canberra, you might need to ask Adam Collins, but I would assume no one's in Canberra in January just because they're all back at their normal homes. Patrick says, how many teams in world cricket would prime Daniel Vittori walk into today? Um, if we're doing prime, he has to still be a really good bowler, but his batting has stepped up. And if that's the case, he gets in quite a few. Because even if you're saying, well, he's not in our top four bowlers, if you can bat him at number seven and you have a wicketkeeper who can bat at number six, uh, and he allows you five bowlers. So he's obviously not going to get into India's team. Uh, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh probably have enough left arm finger spin that they don't need that. Australia, you you would probably play him ahead of Lyon just because of his batting. Um, even though I think Lyon probably has a slightly better bowling record, although Lyon didn't have to bowl in New Zealand as much. Um, but I would think that he would get in the majority of the other teams off the top of my head. I think he'd go, he'd be in Pakistan's team. Um, so that's the only other Asian team I think I didn't mention there. I'd probably be in Afghanistan's team because of his batting. So there's the two Asian teams. Um, certainly South Africa, you know, Zimbabwe, um, and New Zealand. Um, so, yeah, he's a really good player, Patrick, I think. Daniel Vittori. He could probably still play. He still looks young enough to play, if we're being honest. Uh, Swami Nathan says... Oh, God. My whole screen's gone blank. Swami Nathan says... Uh, what can Iswaran, uh, Panchal, and Safraz do to get a call up for India? Look, I don't know as much about the others too. I'm, I'm aware of their general situations, but you know, I haven't been as uh, invested in it. S- Safraz, I think a lot of it is where he's batted in the batting order. I think a lot of it is his weight um, as well. But Safraz, he has the second best first class average of all time at the, at the moment. He's a really interesting cricketer to me because when when he first played in, in the IPL, I almost thought that, well, I still think in T20 cricket, he doesn't play in a way to make as many runs as he should or maximize his, his worth to a cricket team. So of all the players out there that have almost gone too far towards the intent merchants uh, in the world, it would be him just because he would appear to have a game where he could average 40 with the bat and a strike rate of 145, 150, you know, which are Joss Butler numbers, right? And he's decided to have a strike rate of 165, 170, which is admirable and I'm completely on his side. Um, but it seems to have affected him. But from a test point of view, I, I think he probably has to bat first drop, doesn't he, more? It, I've said this before, and I think someone might have tweeted and, and included me in, in, in it earlier today. So if you look at um, uh, Farwad uh, from Pakistan, a lot of his fans don't like to hear this, but when you don't bat in the top four, first-class cricketers, test cricketers, selectors, coaches look down on you because generally test cricketers throughout the history of the game have been picked from top four first-class batters. And if you're batting at number five or number six in domestic cricket, it is seen as the cushiest ride you can have if you're a talented player. 
And we have seen this time and time again where, you know, I remember, you know, the, the, the great story was Glenn Maxwell and Matthew Wade fighting to bat higher up the order in order to prove to Australia that they should be, um, you know, they should be playing in, in that perspective um, as batters. So it, it's a real thing. It happens all around the world. And it's always going to be a thing. And the reason is, it's very rare to have a first-class team where they have a, where they have three bowlers of you know, prep the ability to keep pressure on a top-level batter all the way through. And so, generally, one or two of those is going to be with the new ball, and then you would hope that one of the others is is a spinner. It might be that you get two spinners in some situations, but even then, if you're not facing the spinners with the ball being hard and bouncing and spinning further, it's a better place. If you can, you know, on average. In first-class cricket, I think a wicket falls every 55 balls. I think that's right. So if you're coming in at 150 uh, ball mark all the time, that's a huge advantage in first-class cricket. Whereas if you talk to, you know, there's a great podcast I did with Abhinav uh, Mukund where we were talking, where he was talking about what the difference between first-class cricket and test cricket is. And he was saying he never felt settled because you know, Jimmy Anderson's second spell, Jimmy Anderson's third spell, you know, Ben Stokes coming on to ball, all these sorts of things that happen in test cricket, you know, uh, South Africa having five really top level bowlers bowling at you at all time doesn't happen in first class cricket. And so the, the idea is that the best way to be tested as a first class player is up the order. So certainly I would say get as high, if you want to play test cricket, get as high up the order as possible. But as I said, I don't know as much about the other two players just because I don't. But the other thing is cricketers are, sizest weightest um uh you know that uh, everywhere i go with cricketers they're all calling each other fat all the time and, and all these sorts of things it matters and if you want to say it shouldn't as a society i'm more than happy to agree with you um i you know i do think from an if you are playing a sport you know you are held to obviously stricter standards but if he's averaging 75 at his size it's the jesse Ryder rule right like at a certain point you're just like well this is who he is and we're going to pick him and we know what he's like. And um, he probably gets dropped quicker because, you know, we'll say that he's not as good in the field or he can't run runs for other people or whatever that may be. But when you are that good with the bat, it's hard to argue. Anyway, let us take a, another break. And then after the break, we will come back and I'll do a couple in the room. And then I will um, finish up because it's getting really, really late. You're listening to Wagon Wheel. I am Jared Kimball. Welcome back, Wagon Wheel. Jared Kimber here. Thank you to... Oh, wait. Realize as an idiot. I haven't done everything. Uh, thanks to Ron Nanaji, who has given CZK. What currency is that? I, I love that. It was funny when someone was saying before that you know, the wrong time zone, uh, you do realize that there are so many people from around the world that come in. If you just have a look at the Super Chats, all the different kinds of um, uh, money. But that's a check Corona. Do they not use euros there? I, I've never been there, actually. I have no idea. But, Ron, uh, thank you very much for your super chat. But there's a couple of other um, questions in the room as well, although, of course, now I'm too stupid to be able to find them again. Here we go. Uh, where are we here? Uh, Anwesh says, last week you had a question about the second best batter ever. Same question here, but for Paulus. Oh, I shouldn't have started this one, should I? Uh, has there been a def definitive greatest bowler, and who are the top three or four contenders? No, I don't think you can make a claim that there is a definitive top bowler in test cricket. So we had this conversation, I believe, um, uh, with some people online. Uh, so they were asking about George Lohman and Sid Barnes specifically. So George Lohman is a really interesting one because if you look in his era, I think he averages 
was it uh, 10.97 or whatever it is in test cricket. But he actually averages more than that in first-class cricket. Don't worry, it's not too much. It's like 14 he averages in first-class cricket. But when you look at his era, there are quite a few other bowlers with a similar bowling average to him. So as good as George Lohman was, you know, we do know that there is J.J. Ferris and there's a few other guys who did similar things who weren't necessarily thought of. Um, I mean, they're all thought of as great bowlers for their era. But George Lohman wasn't... It's not like Bradman, if you have a look at Bradman's first-class average, which is 96 or whatever it is. And then he, and then the next best is Safra is actually at 75. And then I think someone else is at 69 or 70. Which is George Lohman. There are actually people in his era with better first-class bowling averages. Uh, then you've got the Sid Barnes question. I think I've said this a lot, but I think Sid Barnes averages 20 or 21 against Australia and 8 or 9 against South Africa. I mean, he still had to get those wickets against South Africa. It was a better South African team than George Lohman um, destroyed, absolutely unquestionably. But again, uh, as good as Sid Barnes was, there is um, you know that question mark there. But he was certainly, I think Sid Barnes certainly deserves to be thought of as one of the better bowlers of all time. Uh, I'd have him ahead of Lohman, I think, um, from that perspective. But if you look at all the modern guys, so whether it's, I don't know, Bill O'Reilly, um, I'm trying to think of some of the others, um, Malcolm Marshall, Richard Hadley, Kirtley Ambrose, Glenn McGrath, um, Murley, Shane Morn, all these sorts of guys. I don't think there's anyone that you would say there is a out now, uh, you know, the best bowler of all time. And, and I do think it's much trickier and I'm not, particularly looking forward to that um and, and when we get to that as a uh, as a project i'm sure that you know me and cheyenne will eventually get there as well but it's a fascinating um thing but if you're asking for my contenders just off the top of my head i think hadley merely worn marshall barnes is my top five off the top of my head and then got sort of curtly garner so garner <laughs> I'm gonna have to do a video with Garner one day just to uh, explain how good he was. But Garner's a really interesting one for me because he has a record of a person who took a new ball without having taken the new ball that often. I think you make a really good claim that Joel Garner might have been the best test bowler of all time, and yet he doesn't always crack top ten lists. Um, I find him fascinating. I, that hasn't answered your question, Anne. It's a great question. And, and I suppose the best answer would have been if I stopped with, I'm not sure there's been a definite greatest bowler of all time, um, which almost makes it more fun than the other one and then the batters. I think that top five with the batters is much easier than top five with the bowlers. And and I should say before someone gets upset, this is just off the top of my head. I'm not, you know, not going through hours and hours of research here. Um, and I've done a little bit more on the batters. Uh, Ekant says, Logan Van Beeks was the best super over. Previously, it was 25 runs in both men's and women. Yeah, but you're forgetting, Ekant, that Logan Van Beek also bowled a brilliant super over he was the best super over combined the best super overs the best super event just wanted to point that one out uh papa says uh i would like to analyze ball tracking data on my own do you have any idea where i can get or buy the data look you can talk to crickfish they were going to come up with something that was going to allow people to buy it journalists and so forth um they never quite got there um in the end i i think there was obviously some hacks and some people might have got some data from some cricket boards who were putting uh, Hawkeye stuff up on their websites. Sadly, that may not exist anymore, probably because people like me used it. But um, uh, yeah, that went away. But CrickFizz is probably your best bet. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, they're at the moment not looking at bringing people in, uh, at bringing in journalists or people, hobbyists to pay for it. 
but it might happen again one day. Uh, Keshuv says, what surprised you more? Ireland not making the second round, West Indies losing to Netherlands, Zimbabwe. Surprised me more. Um, I'd have to go back through uh, the full setup. I, I mean, I thought Ireland should have made it to the second round. I thought West Indies could easily lose to Zimbabwe. But I think, you know, with what was a sort of second tier Netherlands side, I think it's a little bit disappointing to lose to them. So that's probably, of those three things, that's the most surprising out there. The other two, so if you want me to rank it, most surprising is losing the Netherlands. Least surprising is losing the West Indies and Ireland's probably in the middle. I thought Ireland was a good team and I think they should be better than they are, but here we are. And Keshev also went in with a uh, super chat. Says, can Bill get, uh, can Bill, can Gil bat at number three in the West Indies with Jaiswal Gaikwad picked? I mean, yes, if that's the way they wanted to go. I, I don't think there's anything in Gil's, uh, unless he's one of those people who doesn't like um, waiting around. Uh, you know, the famous story of that, of course, is Matthew Elliott, who was an opening batter, and uh, they sh- clearly should have just picked him. Um, and instead, they tried to bat him at number three, and he'd never batted at number three before, so he had to. <laughs> If you, you if they had footage of him in the change room before he went out to bat, like punching um, boxing gloves because he had to get rid of all of his excess energy, and then he went out to bat. I remember he hit a six off Alan Donald that barely got above the um, square leg umpire's head. He was just so jacked by the time he got out there, which is not actually how Matthew Elliott batted at all. Um, that's very rare, but there are some people who are just openers, openers, and I think um, in that sort of environment. Uh, I wouldn't expect Gil to be that. He looks like someone like me who can bat anyway. So I suppose they could do that if they if they wanted to. Uh, huge thanks to uh, Ron and Keshav for their super chats and to everyone else in the uh, comments as well. Please like and subscribe. Remember, we've got the new page, Jared Kimber Podcast, that you can go over there um, and have a look at and subscribe to. It will help us up very soon. We'll be moving over there. So very soon, you won't be able to comment on the main page. <laughs> You'll have to go over there. But thank you to everyone who already has. Um, uh, we've got, if you're watching this live on the YouTube, there will be lots of Ashes comment. Well, there'll be Ashes video in the morning. If you're listening to the podcast, there'll be Ashes videos most mornings, I suppose, uh, during this one. So thank you to everyone who's been supporting us so far. And we will see you again very soon. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week, and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Podcast Network.